You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. You guys can go ahead and make it back to your seats. We're going to continue on with today's service. For those of you who don't know me, um, as Christy said, my name is Julius, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the Village Church Hamden. Again, we want to extend a hand of welcome even in these frigid conditions. I'm just thankful for each and every one of you being here. I mean, we don't want to take it for granted that we get to meet in a building and get to meet together, especially with everything going on in the world. Um, and so again, just really thankful for each and every one of you being here. Um, We've been going through a series, or last week we started a series called Walking in Faith, the Story of Abraham, where we're diving into different portions of Genesis, and Dan kicked us off, Pastor Dan kicked us off last week by going through Genesis 12, and this week we'll be going through Genesis 13 and continuing to understand Abraham's journey as he is walking in faith with the God, the Bible. Um, So what we're going to do is go ahead and read Genesis 13. So if you guys would go ahead and stand for the reading of the scripture I'll be reading for us today. Genesis 13. Abram went up from Egypt to to the Negev. He, his wife, and all he had. And Lot with him. Abram was rich in livestock, silver and gold. He went by stages from the Gev to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Verse 5. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the lamb was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Verse 10, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zohar was well watered, everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. After Lot had separated from him, The Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. 
Verse 17, get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre and Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. You all may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're just so thankful for the opportunity to be in the house of the Lord. We're thankful for the opportunity to be with one another and to be able to encourage one another to continue to push forward, to trust in you. And as we dive into today's text, Father, would you, through your Holy Spirit, just be leading us to see your faithfulness, your sovereign plan come to fruition, that you are leading us and helping us to see that you will provide for us no matter the situation. And so I pray, Father, Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight? Help us just to know that you are our God and we are your people and we get to worship you. We pray this in your most glorious name. Amen. So as we dive into Genesis 13, one concept that we'll need to understand, we'll need to understand what it means to be a peacemaker what it means to be a peacemaker. And this idea tends to come up all throughout the Bible, but it's most popular or most known in Matthew 5, verse 9. Matthew 5, verse 9, it says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And so this is from the Beatitudes or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so we have to be wondering to ourselves, because it seems like here that anyone who calls himself a Christian or a follower of Christ, that this would be an important characteristic or attribute that they should have to be a peacemaker. But the question would be then, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Is it someone who finds a resolution or a solution in the midst of a very tense situation or someone who fights for social justice? Or is it someone when asked, what do you want to do in life? It's to make sure that there's world peace. You know, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And so theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he has a book called The Sermon on the Mount, kingdom life in the fallen world where he kind of narrows the scope and helps us to understand what this concept is, what it means to be a peacemaker. And this is the quote. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom. It is a rich word and conveys the idea of wholeness, health, and well-being. It could be translated salvation. Those who meet Those who make peace are those who earnestly seek the shalom, the salvation of their followers. I'll read that last part again. Those who make peace are those who earnestly seek the shalom, the salvation of their fellows. So as we journey along, we begin to see that Abram is having an evolution or having a journey of what it means to be a peacemaker. One who is willing to seek the salvation of someone else, even at great 
cost to himself. But to better understand Genesis 13, we have to kind of go back to Genesis 12 because that even provides that much more context for what it looks like for Abram's journey to becoming a peacemaker. So chapter 12, and as Pastor Dan talked about last week, is where you know, God puts a vision out for Abram for the rest of his life. Verses 1 to 3 is God really casting vision for Abram and letting him know that I am going to make you, not me, Julius, but God is going to make Abram a great nation. He is going to do mighty things through Abram that the ripple effects of Abram's life will be felt for generations upon generations to come. And this wouldn't be, this wouldn't be just for the Israelites from an ethnic standpoint, but this would be also for a spiritual lineage. It will be a spiritual legacy as well that we would feel the ripple effects today as well. And so as God is casting this vision, you can imagine that Abraham is pretty excited. He's pretty excited because at this point, he doesn't even have a son. At this point, that's the one thing he has been wanting. And so he sees that God is casting this vision upon his life and he's getting excited. He's getting to have everything that he's ever wanted. And so it's similar to any college coach or anyone who is trying to recruit someone to their business or to their team. And he's casting this vision. He's saying, your name is going to be in the Raptors if you come play for me. If you come work for me, your legacy, your lineage will have ripple effects for generations upon generations to come. And people will remember your name. And so Abram is very excited at this prospect. So out of his excitement, he himself builds an altar to the Lord in order to celebrate this occasion. And so we see this in chapter 12, verses 6 to 7. This is, this is, and I'll read this out for us. Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the oak of Murrah. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so we have this moment in time where Abram really dedicates this moment to the Lord by building him an altar in honor of this vision that the Lord in verses 1 to 3 has just casted out for Abram. But the bulk of chapter 12 really isn't ultimately about God's promise to Abram, but it's about Abram's failure to trust in the Lord to provide with this promise. And so verses 10 to 20 in chapter 12 really details Abram's desire to keep the peace, to keep the peace with Pharaoh. But in doing so, he tells a lie and says that his wife, Sarah, is is his sister. He tells a lie. And so he tries to tell this lie in order to preserve his own life. We see this in verses 12 to 13. When the Egyptians see you, and this is Abram talking to his wife, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say, you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you. And my life will be spared on your account. And my life will be spared on your account. 
Abram wanted to keep the peace, yes, but his motivation was wrong. His motivation was ultimately just to preserve his own life. He didn't trust that the Lord would be able to deliver in such a time as this. He didn't trust that the Lord, in the midst of his promise, would still be able to make him a great nation if he were to die that day, which in some respects would be true, but he didn't trust that the Lord would be able to get him out of that situation. And so his actions, him lying, caused his wife to be put in a compromising situation. It caused Pharaoh, due to no fault of his home, to be struck with a plague by the Lord because the Pharaoh finally realized, yo, this isn't his sister. This is actually his wife in verse 17. And so again, Abram wanted there wanted to be a peace. He wanted to ensure that he could be a peacemaker, step into a situation and be a resolution. His motivation was for himself. His motivation was to preserve his own life. So instead of preserving the lives of others, instead of thinking about how his lie would affect the wholeness of his wife, the wholeness of Pharaoh, it actually caused both of them harm in different ways. So this affected them so much. And so Abraham's failure to be a peacemaker in chapter 12 reveals that he didn't trust in God's promise to provide. And so knowing this helps us to better understand the context of verses 13 and verses 1 to 4 and 13. This depicts Abram coming back from Egypt to where he first made the altar of the Lord in chapter 12, verses 6 to 7 in Bethel. And yes, things ultimately worked out for Abram. Abram from Pharaoh was able to receive a lot of wealth, a lot of riches, a lot of things, material things. So he made out pretty well. But we do have to think about the fact that he failed as a peacemaker. He sold out his wife for his own life. He caused Pharaoh to contract a plague. Abraham failed to be a peacemaker and ultimately failed to trust that God would deliver even in the midst of a very tense situation. And so this brings us to finally verses 3 to 4, where God brings Abram back to the altar, back to the place where it all began. It says this, he went by stages from the Gev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been. Verse 4, to the site where he had built the altar, and Abram called on the name of the Lord there. And so even in failure, Even in the midst of Abram telling a lie and failing to be a peacemaker, God brings him back to himself. God brings Abraham, Abram, back to his promises. He reminds him where it all began. He reminds Abram where he first experienced the promise of the Lord, where he first experienced who God was in the first place. And he reminds him that, yes, hey, even in the midst of a tough situation, I am going to bring about my preordained plan. I am going to bring about my plan in order to make you into a great nation. My promises are not vain. My promises are not empty. They will come to fruition. And so he's helping them to understand, even in the midst of a time where it seems like there's no hope and you shouldn't have faith, please still trust in me. Please still trust in my promises to deliver you and to make you into a great nation. And so Abraham going back to the altar is a reminder for us as well. It's a reminder for us to remember the first time we experienced the forgiveness of God. 
That like Abram, as we are going through life, it becomes easier and easier to forget the promises of God, the things in which God has told us when we first realized that the forgiveness of God was for us, that it was something that applied to us, it was something that is real for us. We forget the why behind we believe and trust in the gospel in the first place. Or like any sports movies, a lot of times, or even movies in general, someone loses desire for what they are doing in life. They lose, they lose desire for playing a sport, or they lose desire for a particular career. And so they're wondering and they're chasing, they're like, what am I going to do? How am I going to fan the flame of desire in my life once again? And so they go back to that, the, the, the field or that first place where they realize, oh, This is why I do what I do. This was the place where I finally fell in love with the basketball game or with the career that I ultimately want to choose. And so this helps us to realize that sometimes going back helps us to push forward. That sometimes going to the past helps us to realize that we can continue on in the future. And so with the business of life, and I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I fall into the trap of just doing things just to do them. Forgetting about the why behind why I may be read my Bible, why I may be praying. Sometimes it's just a task that I want to check off the list. I forget that this is something that applies to me, that it's something that matters, that this is something that replenishes my soul day in and day out. And so... Just like how I've been trying to do even lately, I go back to old journals or I go back to old sermons or I go back to old Bibles that I marked up because at the time I believed that every single solitary scripture, which it is, was applicable to my life. And so I went back in order to continue forward. I went back in order to remember, wow, this is the first time when I experienced the Lord and it was real and it still is real today. And so If you're feeling apathetic lately, if you're struggling in your faith, I'm not saying this is a silver bullet, but it does help to go back. It does help to go back to that first time when you realize that God's forgiveness was for you. It does help to realize that, wow, when I was struggling with something, when I was going through something, and when I felt like the Lord wasn't there, hey, he did actually provide in the midst of that tough situation. It does help to go back to old sermons that you're listening to and to remember, wow, this really helped me at this time and it's going to help me now and it's going to help me to carry on into the future. And even if you're not a Christian, I think one thing to even be asking yourself is, why did you start on this journey of spirituality or faith in the first place? That if you are struggling right now to wonder, why should I continue on in this journey to understand more about God or this whole Christian thing or this whole Jesus thing? Well, I would say, go back to the first time where you started to think, why did I start in this journey in the first place? And I would encourage you to continue on. Because the more that we continue on, the more that we realize that the past even helps us to pursue or push on into the future, it also helps us to continue to push forward closer to God and have ultimate and true peace. And so this brings us to the rest of chapter 13. And so after verses 1 to 4, we get to verses 5 to 9, and this is Uh, setting us up for the rest of the chapter. 
And so Abram's return to Bethel helps us to understand that now he is continuing on in his evolution to being a peacemaker. So verses 5 to 9, it says this, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And so upon first glance, as you're looking at the text on the surface level, you would think to yourself, man, they couldn't work it out. That they ultimately had to separate and there was no resolution to their relationship that they couldn't stand the sight of one another. And so they say, you know what? Let's just peace out. I don't ever want to see you ugly mug ever again. But the text actually tells us a different story. The separation of Abraham and Lot doesn't mean the lack of a resolution. The separation was actually the resolution in and of itself. I mean, Abram suggesting they separate was him trying to preserve the relationship. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. To him suggesting to separate was actually him saying, let's preserve this relationship. It's similar to the old stereotype, you know, best friends shouldn't live together. A best friend shouldn't, you know, live together. One of the reasons is because a lot of things that you once thought were endearing, like they were unorganized, maybe they're messy, or maybe they snore really loud, whatever it may be, at one point you thought, oh, that's cool, that's nice, I don't have to deal with that on, this, on a daily basis. Now y'all move together, now you have to deal with that all of the time. Those things that you thought were just kind of funny quirks are now things you have to look at each and every day when you wake up. And so over time, you start thinking to yourself, well, if we continue to live together, then guess what? Our friendship will deteriorate and we'll no longer be friends ever again. And so in order to preserve the relationship, in order to preserve the friendship, in order to stay best friends, you have to move out in order so that you preserve the relationship. And that's what Abraham understood here. Abram understood that in order to preserve the relationship between him and Lot, they needed to separate and there was more than enough land to go around in order so that both of their families would be set up for a long time to come. But what happens next is the the beautiful part in uh, Abram's evolution of becoming a peacemaker. Verse 9, isn't the whole land before you? separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And this doesn't seem like a big deal in the text, but this is huge. That living in a patriarchal society, Abram, being the older one, being the elder statesman, he had the rightful first choice as to where he would have wanted to go where he would have wanted to set up shop for him and his family. He had the rightful choice, but instead he allowed for Lot to pick where he wanted to go first. That's a big deal because if you think about it, Abram is risking a lot here. 
He's risking potentially the most fruitful section of the land, generational wealth, a place for him and his family to be provided for for uh, time and time and time again. And so Abram is risking a lot here, but he sacrificed his right to choose first in order to ensure that his, his nephew Lot would be cared for in the long run. Instead of preserving his own life, instead of just first thinking about himself, Abram's evolution of becoming a peacemaker, we're starting to see he's really understanding that I am to care for the shalom, the peace of others first. That's what being a peacemaker is about. And so unlike chapter 12, Abram displays what a peacemaker really is, that even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of a very tense situation, he seeks the salvation of another. Abram puts the needs of, of Lot before his own. And in, in, in doing so, he really displays his growth. He really displays that he is becoming a true peacemaker. And so the question even for us is, Abram, and as we will continue on in verses 10 to 18, we really have to ask ourselves, what are we putting our faith in? What are we putting our ultimate faith in? And what I mean by that is Abram here is helping us to understand that he is putting his faith in God's promises. And we're starting to see that Lot is going to put his faith in something else. He's putting his faith in momentary relief rather than eternal relief. And so as we continue on in verses 10 to 18, we'll start to see the contrast of what they put their faith in. And we need to even ask ourselves, what are we putting our faith in? Is our faith really about just a momentary relief, a momentary release? Or are we really seeking the eternal peace, the eternal relief, the eternal release that comes from God? And so as we continue on in verses 10 to 13, we depict Lot here as he is choosing where he is going to set up shop. Verse 10, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zohar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Lot looked to see where the most plentiful surface, where the most plentiful part of the land was. But he was mainly looking and not deciding based on where God wanted him to go, but based on where his stomach wanted him to go. He was really just looking to make sure that he would be able to have the most plentiful part of the land, which isn't a bad thing, but God was not involved in his decision in any way, shape, or form. And so he was going for a temporary, a momentary relief rather than an eternal peace. Rather than having the ultimate peace, he wanted to go for something in which he could fill his stomach, but he would never be satisfied. But this is in contrast to Abram, who is trusting in the Lord to lead him where he should set up shop. That even in him showing and saying, Lot, you choose first, he is saying, I know that no matter where I go, God's got me. God's going to provide for me. Verses 14 and 15. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. So again, earlier we saw that Lot made a decision not based on where the Lord wanted him to go, but based on where he just thought he should go. 
And in so doing, he even ends up closer to Sodom and Gomorrah where there are a lot of people who wanted nothing to do with God. But with Abram, we see that the Lord is leading Abram. The Lord told him, look up. I'm going to show you. I'm going to walk with you in this journey. I'm going to help you to understand where to go because of my promise that I made in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that I will make you into a great nation. And him making him into a great nation isn't just about, again, the lineage of the Israelites, but it's a spiritual lineage that includes all of us in this room, all of those who trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Galatians 3, 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. You see, God provides for Abram by giving him the promised land, by giving him the promised uh, generational uh, blessing that would occur for time and time again. But he will provide for us by giving us the promised son. He will provide for us by giving us the promised son that just as Abraham was uh, brought and being a peacemaker in a tense situation, God is the ultimate peacemaker who brings ultimate salvation to our souls. And we can even see this with the whole aspect of the, of the gospel that we were in conflict due to our sin, in conflict with God. And it was our fault. It was our sin. We had done wrong against God. And this is the great dilemma here, right? That God, who is a holy, perfect being, that God, who is a just judge, who is a fair judge, cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He can't just look away and act like this is not happening. And so he has to take care of the problem. And so he enters into the conflict and does so by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, by sending Jesus to be the perfect example, to be the perfect sacrifice who would die on the cross for our sins. You see, God is the ultimate peacemaker because he shows the greatest example through Jesus Christ. Abram's example is one that symbolizes, that foreshadows something to come, Jesus Christ being the promised son who would save us from our sins, who would be our ultimate salvation. Wouldn't be a momentary one, but it's a foundation that will never crumble, a foundation that in the midst of our greatest conflicts will hold firm. That's the beautiful aspect of God being the ultimate peacemaker. It's something that we will always be able to depend on. That's the beautiful aspect of being a peacemaker. And it's something that God challenges us to do as well. That as followers of Christ, we are called to be peacemakers. To enter into the conflict of life, to enter into the conflict of this world and be able to bring peace, be able to bring shalom, being being able to bring not necessarily saving people, but helping people to understand where salvation is, which is in Christ. And one of my heroes, his name is Dr. John Perkins, and I love many of his books that he's written, but he has a book called Welcoming Justice, where he talks about three R's. And I think this helps us to even narrow the scope and give us some more practicals, a practical paradigm into what it means to be a peacemaker. And for us, the first R is relocation, relocation. And that is recognizing 
that there is a problem, recognizing that there is an issue. And so for Dr. Perkins, a lot of times he uses this from the, the paradigm in race, but we can even widen this to every aspect of life, that when we see that there is an issue happening, that we can recognize that this is affecting other people, that this is affecting human beings who may be struggling, who may be hurting, and this is an opportunity for us to jump in and to be peacemakers in the midst of this. But then there is the next R, redistribution. And so it's not just enough to be able to recognize what's going on. We got to do something about it. We actually have to get up and do something about the conflict that is happening. And for us as Christians, for us as believers, that can look like a whole multitude of things. That can being able to be there as someone who can uh, just be someone to vent to. That can be even in our church, being able to be a part of the mercy ministry team, being on one of our many serving teams. When someone has a baby, you can help cook meals. Or when someone is in need, you are there to provide a practical hand so that they may be in help. There are many ways that you can do it. But The main aspect in redistribution is providing our resources, our time, our talents in order to bring peace to someone else's life that may be in a really tough situation. It's to literally get up and do. And the last one is reconciliation. And this is mending relationships. And that is what the gospel is all about. It's about how God has mended, that God has brought a relationship that was severed, that our relationship with God was severed, and he bridged the gap between us through Jesus Christ. And so we get to be a part of that with one another. We get to be a part of mending relationships, building relationships, building something so beautiful so that the the gospel, the church of God, the people of God, really is able to worship the same God along with one another and be able to look at one another and say, I love you. So there's so much to being a peacemaker and it's a beautiful thing. And it's something that God invites us to to ensure that love and concern for others, love and concern for our fellow human beings is something that isn't a rare occurrence, but something that is second nature. That being a peacemaker is an opportunity to provide someone with the dignity and worth that they were born with. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. It's really looking out for someone before even yourself. And Abram's evolution in becoming a peacemaker at one point in chapter 12 was a failed peacemaker. And in chapter 13, we see him as a successful peacemaker because he truly wants to seek the shalom of others even before himself. And that foreshadows Jesus, who is the ultimate peacemaker. And that's what we get to do. That's what we get to be a part of. And so I would invite back up the worship team. And as we begin to close, as you're coming down the aisles and really beginning to take communion, just be reminded that God is the ultimate peacemaker in your life as well. This isn't just an abstract idea, but this is a concept that really applies to each and every one of us. This is an opportunity to be reminded of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
that him being a peacemaker, that him bringing shalom to your life isn't a momentary occurrence, but it's the eternal reality. It's something that continues on for not just the generations to come, but eternity. And so I, we invite you as someone, if you are a believer, come and partake in the communion table. If you're not a Christian here, we just invite you to think through and really process through what does it look like to have peace for you? And I would venture to say that the God that we serve, that when he sent Jesus Christ, he sent him in order to provide you with some peace and some security. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're just so thankful that you are our ultimate peacemaker. In your word in Isaiah 26, 3, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed to you because he trusts in you. And so I pray would we follow the example of Abram, one who wanted to keep the peace but at first couldn't but through walking with you became a peacemaker would we follow in the example of Abram would we follow in the example of Christ to be reminded of what it means to have peace but also to practically extend peace to every aspect of our lives So I just pray, Father, that you would be encouraging us just to live out our faith. In your name I pray, amen.